opportunity. Acts chapter 26, verse 1, Agrippa said to Paul, Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. He said, In regard to all these things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I'm sure that Paul was grateful at this moment to be present his case before an objective audience who had an intimate knowledge of the ways of the Jews and the Jewish laws and their customs. Because this wasn't the case. Oftentimes when Paul stood, he didn't stand before anybody objective. He stood before people who were hostile. He'd been accused by a hostile Jewish mob whose clear motive was to kill him. That's why even he was brought to trial. They said, oh, Paul, there's the one that speaks against Moses and the customs. Let's capture him. And they, and they tried to capture him and, and caused a mob to stir. They wanted to kill him. And even when he was in prison in Jerusalem, some Jews bound themselves under a solemn oath not to taste anything until they had killed Paul. Paul got wind of that and was taken safely with, I think, 200 horsemen up to Caesarea where he sat for 200, for two years. And even there, while he was in Caesarea, he faced biased people. The Roman officials who were to try Paul were biased as well. There was one time where Paul stood before Felix, who knew about Christianity, but kept Paul in custody because he was wishing to do the Jews a favor. So here was, free and innocent in some sense, Felix knew that, but because he had an agenda, a bias towards the Jews, he wanted to be gracious to them, did a favor, kept him in jail. And so now he's standing before Agrippa who knew a thing or two about the Jewish customs and Paul was hoping for a, an objective judge. <clears throat> Paul begins his defense by some background of his life. Verse 4, he says, So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. And then he gets down to the crux of the issue why he stands a prisoner. Verse 8 is going to form our question we're going to ask. He says, Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Our English word incredible comes from two words. first word is in, and the second word is credible. Credible means something that is to be believed. It it's, uh, has credulity, we get the word from. It is to be believed. Preceded by in, the word makes an opposite meaning. It says it's not credible. It is not believable. And that's how you might translate this here in verse 8. Why is it considered not believable among you people if God does raise the dead? That's the idea behind the, the Greek word. Apistos. comes from the Greek root pistos, which is the word you get faith. Faithful, believable, belief. You put the alpha privative, the Alpha, the ah before it, ah pistos, means it's not believable. It's untrustworthy. It is incredible. It is not to be believed. You know, the simple fact is that there are those who don't believe in the resurrection. They just don't see the resurrection in any way as being credible. They don't think it's reasonable to believe such a thing. And so, this morning, with this issue of the resurrection before us, I want to ask this question. Why is it considered incredible? If God does raise the dead. In fact, that's the title of my message this morning. Why is it considered incredible if God does raise the dead? I want to consider some objections why people find the, the resurrection to be unbelievable. And we'll go through some things. First, I want you to see even here, as Paul continues his defense before Agrippa, he went on to describe his encounter with the risen Christ. Look at verse 12. He says, I was engaged, and as I was journeying to Damascus, 
with the authority and commission of the chief priests. She was off to, to find Christians and arrest them and bound them and bring them into prison. He says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This was the risen Christ that had appeared to Paul. His name was Saul at that time. He spoke with him and then he sent him to be a messenger to the Gentiles. Right? Verse 17 says that. Go, I'm rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. And here's what he was told to do. He said, open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's the message that Paul is to go and proclaim to the Gentiles. Preach about Jesus, crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again the third day. Preach that in His name there is forgiveness of sins. And preach that as you know the forgiveness of sins, you have an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith. It's the message. He was to go. And Paul said in verse 19, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. He went and preached to the people, verse 20, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And it's for this cause that Paul was in prison because he was preaching this message. They didn't like it. The Jews didn't like it. In verse 22, Paul even speaks about his preaching ministry. So I've obtained help from God. I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, studying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. That's his message there. He was to go and preach that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would proclaim light to the Gentiles. He was Paul. The crux of his message was the resurrection. He said he saw the risen Christ and he went to preach about the resurrection of Christ. And as it turned out, Paul's defense before Agrippa really wasn't so much of a defense as it was a witnessing opportunity. And he's bringing it now to Agrippa in verse 27. He says all these things. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He says, I know that you do. He says, I know you believe them. Therefore, you will understand them. Therefore, you will see that I'm innocent and, and do what you can to free me. And then in verse 28, it can be read, read several different ways. It can be read as a, as a statement. You'll persuade me in a short time to become a Christian. Or I think probably better. It's probably read as a, as a question. In a short time, you'll persuade me to be a Christian? I'm not sure about that, Paul. Because he knew all this stuff. In just a little bit of time, I'm going to be persuaded. I'm, I'm not really sure. I think that's better because we have no sense at all that Agrippa, Agrippa believed in the resurrection. But Paul was wishing that he would because the resurrection was a core and central to his belief. It was core and central to his preaching and he called on others to believe it. He called on Agrippa to believe it. And so this morning, I, I want to look at verse 8. And just ask this question. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? He was trying to press that with Agrippa. Saying, Agrippa, why, why do you find this so difficult to believe that God does raise the dead? Because they refuse to believe in Christ risen from the dead. They refuse to then have life in His name. Now, there's certainly many answers that could be given to this. I'm certainly not going to be exhausted my message. I just thought of several Reasons why people don't believe, why people believe that it's incredulous to believe that God does raise the dead. Here's my first point, is this, is that many don't believe the prophets. Many don't believe the prophets and therefore find the resurrection incredible. Can't believe it. When Paul was pleading with Agrippa, notice he brought the discussion back to the Scriptures. Look again at verse 27. King Agrippa said, Paul said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. 
Paul's question here about the resurrection revolves around the person and work of Christ. The prophets predicted that he would suffer. Moses predicted that he would suffer. And they predicted also that he would raise again from the dead. And says, do you, do you believe this? I know you do. He's trying to convince him. I know you're an expert in the law. I know you know the way of the Jewish customs. Therefore, you accept that they speak about Christ risen from the dead. In verse 22, again, he said, I stand this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but the prophets and Moses had said that the Christ was to suffer and by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he'd be the first to proclaim light to both Jewish people and to the Gentiles. The scriptures foretold the day when the Messiah would suffer and then rise again. Now, the obvious question is where? Well, we can start with Moses and look at Genesis 3.15 of how Moses anticipated Right, the Satan crushing his heel, but Jesus coming back and crushing his head. I think there's a small allusion there to, to his sufferings for sure, but there is a small allusion there to his, his resurrection. But one of the most clearest places for the sake of time, we're only going to go to one passage today, Isaiah chapter 53. And so I invite you to turn there. And in my message this morning, it's going to be a lot different than it normally is. Normally, I work very hard to have us open the Bibles and have it sit right there on our laps. I work hard to, to mine the depths and exposition of just all the truths there. Today, we're going to be different. Today, you need to have nimble fingers. We're going to go from passage to passage to passage to passage to try to answer this question. I'm using this question that Paul said to Agrippa as a launching point to go totally topical today as we think about the resurrection Isaiah 53, many of you are familiar with these words. They, they clearly predict the sufferings of Christ. Right in verse 3 says that He was despised and forsaken of men, suffering the ridicule of others. Verse 4 says that He was smitten of God and afflicted. God smote Him. And He lived a life that was difficult, an afflicted life. Verse 5 says that He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Just speaks about just, just even his body was, was harmed and pierced. Sword and spear. Verse 7 says he was like a lamb led to slaughter. Suffering. As many of those innocent lambs did that were slaughtered for the nation of Israel for years. Verse 8 says he was cut off out of the land of the living. That can only speak about his sufferings through death. Verse 9 speaks about his grave. Which implies his death. And then in verses 12, 10 through 12, we see some things that give us a, a hint that the suffering servant must be alive. It speaks of his resurrection. The clear implication is he must rise from the dead. Look at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Did you see there the anticipations of Christ being risen from the dead? Verse 10. See, the suffering servant would see his offspring and that he would prolong his days. Even after having a grave, he's going to come back and have some offspring. He's going to come back and, and have his days be long. He's going to prolong his days. That can only be a resurrection. Verse 11. We see the suffering servant will see the result of his anguish and how he'll be satisfied with it. So he's going to go through anguish and then, then there's going to be this consequence, the result of that. The result of that is the redemption of his people. He's going to see it. He's going to be satisfied with that. In verse 12, we see the Messiah would have a portion with the great. In other words, he's alive to share in his inheritance. All these things speak about the resurrection. Yet Agrippa didn't believe this, I don't believe. Though Paul sought to affirm his faith in the prophets, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And he really fundamentally didn't really believe them because he didn't embrace this. You know, this is typical of many people. Many people will say, give feigned allegiance to believing in the Scriptures, but when push comes to shove, they don't. They don't. They just don't believe what the Bible speaks about. 
It's typical of many. It's typical in the days of Paul. It's typical in the days of Jesus. typical of many today. There are many who simply don't believe what the prophets spoke about the resurrection of Christ. They deny the prophets and hold the resurrection to be uncredible and not to be believed. Now, lest you think this was only the result of a, of a, of a political king who found the resurrection to be unbelievable and not believing the prophets... This was a problem with the disciples also. The disciples of Jesus had difficulty believing the prophets. So I turn over to Luke 24. It's one of my favorite stories in all the Scriptures. It tells us of the events that took place in the life of two of the disciples of Jesus shortly after the death of Christ. They're walking along the road to Emmaus talking of what had recently taken place. The city of Jerusalem. Jesus was crucified. And now His tomb is empty. And they couldn't put two... And two together. Do you know why? Because they failed to believe the prophets. Hear the story again in verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus Himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. It's as if they heard a a song in the minor key. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? Typical God question. And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and in word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the the tomb early in the morning, they did not find the body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as these women also had said. But But him they did not see. Now, if they had believed the prophets, what would their response have been? They wouldn't have been singing in the minor key. They would have been singing in a march song. Oh, he's risen! Just as he said... And Jesus rebuked them. And look at how Jesus rebuked them. He rebuked them for not believing the prophets. That's their problem. They don't believe in the resurrection because they don't believe in the prophets. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into His glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. They didn't believe in all that the prophets had spoken. They had the same problem Agrippa had. They didn't believe in them. If they had, they would have believed the resurrection. So why is it considered incredible if God raises the dead? Because many don't believe the prophets. Let's look at my second point. Many don't believe Jesus. I go from the Old Testament, even now swing it to the New Testament. This is especially the case again of the disciples. They were told often by Jesus Himself that He would rise from the dead. And the best place to see this is the Gospel of Mark. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look first at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Right before this is the time when Jesus was questioning, saying, Who do people say that I am? They had all these type of answers. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You're the Christ! He said, you got it right. And then he began to reveal the plan of the Christ. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, this is about as clear as can be. Right? I think it was George Bush who said, read my lips. Right? Just to say, read my lips. The Son of Man needs to suffer. He could have done this with his fingers. He needs to suffer. The Son of Man would be rejected by the the religious leaders. The Son of Man would be killed. 
And the Son of Man after three days would rise again. This is what's going to happen. This is the plan of the Messiah. This is the plan. I'm the Christ. This is going to take place. In verse 32, Mark says he was stating the matter plainly. It was clear to the disciples what Jesus was saying. They understood. And we see in verse 32 that Peter understood. He took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, I hear your plan. I understand your plan. Jesus, it's a bad plan. Let's change your plan. Time out! Time out, Jesus! Time out! Let's have a huddle. Let's rechange your plan. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Let's not do this. Jesus, you're off your rocker. Jesus in verse 33 basically was saying, no, 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 this is the plan. Listen, guys. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise. That's my plan. He says, get behind me, Satan. Your plan's a bad plan. Your plan is man's interest, not God's interest. So it's clear to the disciples, they knew full well what Jesus was teaching them. The simple fact was, on the road to Emmaus, that they refused to believe not only the prophets, but they refused to believe Jesus and what he had told them. And it's astonishing as we see Jesus telling them again and again and again and again and again. Turn over to chapter 9. Again, verse 31. Same thing. (coughs) He was teaching His disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He has been killed, He will rise three days later. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus' communication was as clear as His other communication was. His points are clear. He's going to be delivered to the hands of sons of men. One. Point number two, they're going to kill him. Point number three, after he's been killed, he will rise again three days later. But they did not understand this statement. It wasn't that it was unclear. It wasn't that they were incapable of understanding. It's that they they didn't quite fully grasp. They didn't believe everything that was taking place here. Fundamentally, they didn't believe the words of Jesus. Therefore, they didn't understand the words of Jesus because in their minds, no, it's just you can't be the Messiah is going to die. Jesus told them, but they didn't understand because it didn't compute fundamentally because they didn't believe what Jesus was saying. Look in chapter 10. This time we encounter Jesus and disciples on the road going up to Jerusalem. At one point, Jesus stopped. He said, okay, guys, listen, this is important. Um, you ever notice that? Maybe you're walking along the road or walking along someplace talking to somebody. If you're going to make an important point, you stop. And you say, okay, let's just let's remove all the distractions. Let's let's just me and you, okay? SR, just, just me and you. Let me just tell you something. He's right in their face and he's going to tell them this very, very important thing. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death. And we'll hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And I'm not sure they understood. I know they didn't believe. They didn't believe about how he would be killed and rise again. They're just kind of putting it out of Jesus. Okay, Jesus said that, right? You hear it, right? It's very clear as can be, but we're just, we, we can't believe it. It's the third time he said this to his disciples. We're going to Jerusalem, going to be delivered to religious leaders, going to be killed, going to raise again. But we saw on the road to Emmaus that they didn't believe. They didn't believe Jesus. And beyond these three times, there are other times in the Gospel of Mark that we know that Jesus spoke to them as well. Chapter 9, verse 9. Right after the transfiguration, Jesus took Peter and James and John up, saw him transfigured to show the glory of Christ. And when they were coming down, verse 9, they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. He told them clearly He was going to rise again from the dead. Or over in chapter 14, after celebrating the supper, He said, beginning of verse 27, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. 
Again, it was clear. And despite the clear predictions that Jesus, once crucified, would be raised up, the disciples were nowhere to be seen after Jesus was crucified. They didn't believe the words of Jesus. They didn't believe that He would be raised from the dead. They thought that life was over after Jesus died. They thought the party was finished. They said, Jesus, we knew the game plan wasn't, wasn't very good. In fact, turn over to Mark chapter 16 and look, look at these people. We'll catch the disciples a little bit later, but right even now we see the Sabbath being over. The women weren't believing either. It says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might come and anoint Him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, according to Luke 24, verse 8, these women knew of the prediction of Jesus just as well as the disciples knew because the disciples had told them. Jesus had told them. Somehow they knew. They remembered the words of Jesus. And yet, think about how they're coming to the tomb. Are they looking for a risen Savior at this point? They're bringing their spices. They're going to the tomb. They're saying, who's going to roll the stone away for us? We need to get to the body. They're expecting to anoint a body. And at this moment, they were not believing in the words of Jesus. They weren't believing in the words of the resurrection. I turn back again to Luke 24. It's where we pick up the story. After the women saw these things, they went and they reported to the disciples. Like in verse 9, they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the same three who were in Mark 16, the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. They had an angelic vision. He said, He's not here. He's risen. Remember how He spoke to you while He was still in Galilee, right? To, to go up forward to Galilee. We saw that in Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 14. But these words appeared to the disciples as nonsense. And they would not believe them. Why didn't they believe them? Because they didn't believe Jesus. Peter, it's amazing, got up, ran to the tomb, stooping and looked in. He saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. When Peter saw the evidence, everything they said was true, the angelic vision, Rather than believing what Jesus had said, Peter left marveling at what happened. It's kind of like, wow, I don't know. Not fully grasping. Fundamentally, we can see that they had doubt in their minds because they didn't believe Jesus. Why is it considered incredible if God does raise the dead? Because many don't believe the prophets. And many don't believe Jesus. And here's my third point. Many don't understand the power of God. It's a scriptural point here and a logical point. Let's deal with the scripture first. Matthew chapter 22. Why don't you turn over there? Don't understand the power of God. In this passage, we see Jesus Himself defending His belief in the resurrection against those who don't believe. The Sadducees came to Him who don't believe that there's a resurrection. They came with a question to trap him in what he said. And in verse 24, we see their question. And they concocted this wild question to try to show how crazy the resurrection was. They said, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died. And having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. <laughs> I just think about these Sadducees and in their minds thinking about, how <laughs> Jesus, he, he can't answer this question. There's like no way. It demonstrates how perfectly absurd it is to believe in the resurrection. He can't answer the question. Well, Jesus answered the question with a masterful response. He said in verse 29, you're mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. They're like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
Now, regarding the scriptural argument, Jesus quoted from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, proved that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were indeed alive and well during the days of Moses, which was 400 years after they died. Because arguing on a tense of a verb, Scripture says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob long after they died. Rather than saying God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as God is the God of the living, not of the dead, it means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and well. Thus he proved from the Pentateuch, where these Sadducees held their authority, that even the Pentateuch teaches the resurrection. But the issue on the table here with my point is that the people who don't believe in the resurrection oftentimes fail to understand the power of God. Look what Jesus said there. You're mistaken not understanding the power of the Scriptures nor understanding the power of God. I find it interesting here at this point that Jesus didn't say you don't believe in the power of God. Rather, He put on knowing. You don't know the power of God. I think it's a slap in the face to scientists of our day who would pride themselves in their ability to be sophisticated in everything that they know. Figure if we have science enough, we can figure it out. But Jesus says here, you don't understand the power of God. You've not figured out all the facts yet. You're foolish. You need to think harder, is what Jesus says. Now, if anybody, these Pharisees should have understood the power of God. I mean, these Pharisees were six-day creationists. They knew the heavens were made by the word of the Lord. They knew that God spoke and it was done. They knew that He commanded and they all were created. These Sadducees thoroughly believed the creation account. They knew that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. They knew that it was the Lord God who was the one who sustains the universe. They knew that if the Lord should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and all man would return to dust. They knew that God was a life giver. God gave life from the dust. If he takes his spirit away from us, we return to dust. They knew that. The Sadducees weren't ignorant of the ways of God. They knew that the heavens told of the glory of God. They knew that it was God who sits above the circles of the earth, stretching out the heavens like a curtain and spreading them out like a tent to dwell in. They knew that it was God who created all the stars and called them all by name. They had thought long and hard upon the great signs that God performed for Egypt in redeeming them out of slavery. From Egypt. They knew that God turned the water in the Nile into blood. They knew that the frogs and the gnats and the swarms of insects all came by the finger of God. Because even the magicians said that. This is the finger of God. They knew that God struck the Egyptian cattle because He didn't strike the Hebrew cattle with pestilence. It was only the Egyptian cattle that died. And they knew it was clear that God did that, is manifesting His power. They knew that God brought the boils upon the Egyptians and hail upon the land of Egypt, excepting the little village of Goshen, where no hail fell. They could see it was the power of God. They knew that God brought the locusts. They knew that God removed the locusts as soon as they were done. They knew that God brought darkness upon the land, except for that little spot in Goshen where it was lightest day. It was miraculous and they knew that it was the Lord who had the power to kill the firstborn of every family and every animal family in all of Egypt. I mean, clear demonstration. The, the angel of the Lord is coming through and discerning which is the firstborn and then striking the firstborn dead. didn't matter whether it's cattle, sheep, people, firstborn. Unbelievable power of God. And they knew it. And they knew that as people of, of Israel were were redeemed out of there, that they were, they were stuck and Pharaoh's army was about to, to destroy them and they knew that God had the power to split the Red Sea and to allow the Israelites to escape through the Red Sea. They knew the power of God to turn the, the bitter water into the sweet water at Marah. They knew the power of God to, to bring water to, to, um, to give drink to millions at Meribah and Massa. And they knew... How powerful the Lord was as He fed millions of people wandering for 40 years in the desert with the manna, the bread that came down from heaven. Feeding millions of people for 40 years. 
They knew that it was the power of God that sustained them for 40 years in difficult living in the wilderness without their clothes or their sandals wearing out. They knew that it was the Lord who had given them victory over Sihon, king of Eshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. And what's more is the Sadducees knew that these are but the fringes of the ways of God. And yet for some reason, they didn't understand the power of God. For they didn't understand the logic of the Bible. If God can create the universe in which we live, perfectly able to sustain life, if God can create this planet upon which we live, if God can create life, if God can sustain life, then certainly God can raise the dead. Right? Does that make sense? The power of God. If God can do all these things, if He can create life, if He can raise man from the dust of the ground, then certainly God can raise a man from the corpse. Failure to believe in the resurrection is a failure to understand the power of God. Why is it considered incredible if God does raise the dead? Well, because many don't believe the prophets, many don't believe Jesus, many don't understand the power of God. And here's my fourth point this morning. Many want more proof. I want to take this point from ten chapters back in Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Beginning in verse 38, scribes and Pharisees again come to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, you've got to catch this in the context of demanding this sign. Because Jesus had just performed two undeniable miracles before the eyes of the scribes and Pharisees, but it wasn't enough for them. Look at verse 9, back in Matthew 12, as we gear up again to get to verse 38. It was on the Sabbath day. Some Pharisees happened to be in the synagogue. They happened to be there, and, and in walks Jesus. And they look over here, and there's a man with a withered hand. So they said, hey, maybe we can put Jesus, the man with a withered hand, Sabbath, put them all together, and we can accuse him. And that's exactly what they did. They asked him, verse 10, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They knew in their hearts, catch this, that Jesus could heal this man. They knew in their hearts that a, a withered hand could be made perfectly whole. They knew it was the Sabbath. And they knew that if Jesus healed this man, they could accuse him of violating the Sabbath and ultimately destroy him, as verse 14 says. So before healing the man, Jesus gives us talk about having sheep that falls into the pit on the Sabbath day. He says, everyone, if you have a sheep that falls, you're going to take hold of it and bring your sheep out. Therefore, it's permissible. It's okay to do good on the Sabbath. So Jesus said, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored like normal. Verse 13. An undeniable miracle took place. What do these Pharisees and scribes do? We believe. No, rather, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. They saw a sign, but didn't make any difference. A few verses later, beginning in verse 22, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute before he met Jesus. Fathom somebody, blind and mute. Helen Keller. Can't see, can't hear. Demon-possessed. Jesus healed the man. So he spoke and saw. You know, And there are more miracles taking place here than merely physically eyes being opened and physically mouth speaking. He, he seems like he could understand right away and speak. It's amazing. And the Pharisees were unable to deny the miracle. They didn't deny the miracle. You need to see that. They saw proof of His power and didn't deny the miracle. Rather, they took the miracle and sought to twist it. Right? They sought to say, well, He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. See, they, they weren't denying He had power to cast out the demons. They weren't denying that in casting out the demon, He was healing this man. Rather, they took it and tried to twist it. It's really, they have a hard heart that wouldn't believe in Christ. They tried to do all they could to trap Jesus so they might accuse Him. And then in verse 38, in that context, think about this. The scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He'd just given them two undeniable, miraculous signs. And, and they knew that it was, that, that these miracles took place. But they want more. Two undeniable miracles are not enough. But in wanting more, in actuality, they're demonstrating that they will never have enough. And you see that. In, in wanting more, it shows that they'll never be satisfied. Look at how Jesus responds. He responds by the resurrection. 
He says, first of all, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. That's you all. And yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. What's the sign of Jonah? Here it is, verse 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus told the Pharisees beforehand that he would be in the ground dead and buried, yet his tomb wouldn't last long, only a few days. And the implication here is he's going to rise from the dead. It's the resurrection. But it wasn't enough because they always wanted more. Even a resurrection isn't going to satisfy these people. And Jesus told a great illustration of how even a resurrection, a miraculous sign, doesn't satisfy a hardened heart who always seeking for more and more proof. Look, look over at um, Luke 16. Jesus illustrated this story, this fact perfectly with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Right? Perhaps you remember the story of how the rich man lived in his wealth and prosperity and Lazarus was out at the gates longing even to eat anything that fell from the, the table of the rich man. They both died. Lazarus found himself in Abraham's bosom, safe and sound, enjoying pleasure. And the rich man, though, was far off in torment. Torment is so bad, he just wanted a drop of water on his tongue. Abraham said, it wasn't possible. He said, in life, you've enjoyed the pleasures of this world while Lazarus suffered greatly. And now in eternity, we're flipping those roles. You are suffering greatly. And he is enjoying the pleasures of life. And then the rich man had this conversation with Abraham concerning these things. And the dialogue begins in verse 27. He said, I beg you, Father, that you send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Right? If they see a sign, they're going to repent. If they have proof, they're going to repent. And Abraham said, no. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if somebody rises from the dead. Many people seek for all the proof they can get. But in the vast majority of these cases, the proof never satisfies. Even if someone raises from the dead... It won't satisfy. They always want more. Always want more. Always want more. Why is it considered incredible that God raised the dead? Because many don't believe the prophets. Many don't believe Jesus. Many don't understand the power of God. And many want more proof. Well, the good news today is this. Is that this isn't always the case. In other words, there are people who don't believe the prophets, but then later come to believe the prophets and believe in the resurrection. Can you think of anybody like that? Who at first didn't believe the prophets, but then come to believe? Maybe there's several examples. The example that comes to my mind is the Apostle Paul. He's standing before King Agrippa in Acts 26 where he began. You remember that? Paul told his intent to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. We see him denying the prophets and standing in hearty agreement as others stoned Stephen to death. But later, Paul would come to believe the prophets. And he came to see how they spoke of Christ crucified. He came to see how they spoke of Christ resurrected. And that's where he went out. I mean, he went out and proclaimed Christ crucified. He told Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. It's core to his belief. He was one who didn't believe the prophets, but later came to believe the prophets. And there are those who don't believe the words of Jesus but later become convinced of the resurrection. Can you, can you think of anybody like this? Like all the disciples and like Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, they all, initially they didn't believe the words of Jesus. He told them they're going to rise from the dead. They didn't believe. But upon seeing the risen Christ and speaking with Him, they believed. And their belief was shown in their boldness to witness to others of what they had seen and heard. They turned the world upside down with their preaching. They're living. The world has never been the same. The course of human history has changed in large regard because these disciples who didn't believe Jesus came to believe Jesus. 
It was their faith in the risen Christ that compelled them to preach and live in the way they did and transform human history. Well, there are those who don't understand the power of God, but later come to fully believe in the resurrection. Can you think of those like that? Denying the power of God, and yet, at another point, coming to believe and know and understand the power of God and embrace the resurrection? My mind thinks of those who lived in Thessalonica. They were a group of idolatrous people who thought that gods were made of wood and stone and precious metals. They denied their sovereign creator who had given them many reasons to believe. Rather, they worshipped the false gods. And Paul's testimony of them is that they turned to God from idols. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. Turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. They'd seen the power of God, rejected it, preferred these idols instead. And yet, when the gospel came, they, they turned away from the dead idols to a living God and now they wait in hope for His return because they knew that, yes, He was crucified, but yes, they know that He's raised and He's coming back. So if you don't understand the power of God today, there's hope that you can understand it. And there are those who want more proof, who ultimately see proof and do believe. Can you think of anybody like this? Want more proof, and when they get proof, they believe. Thomas comes to mind. He's a man who wanted proof of the resurrection. And when he obtained the proof, he believed. Right? And his story is told in John chapter 20. This is where we're going to close today. John chapter 20. In John 20, 24, we see that Jesus raised from the dead, visited with the disciples, but Thomas wasn't with them. The other disciples were thrilled. We've seen the Lord. He's risen from the dead. They're saying to Thomas, we've seen Him, verse 25. Thomas doubted their words. He didn't believe them. And he said, verse 25, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, eight days later, Jesus appeared to Thomas and He said to him right there in verse 27, He said, reach here with your finger. And see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And when Thomas saw the proof, he immediately believed. He said, My Lord and my God, professing Jesus to be a deity, professing Jesus to be raised from the dead. And then verse 29 is written for us. So we begin to come full circle here. To Thomas, he says, because you've seen me, you've believed. Have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Jesus here pronounces a blessing upon those who haven't seen him and yet have believed. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about us. Who haven't seen the risen Savior, right? I read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, right? Though you haven't seen him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, right? Anticipating His return and your unfading, unperishable, undefiled inheritance that's coming. None of us have seen the resurrected Christ, but many of us have believed that He rose from the dead demonstrating He conquered over sin. And no longer do we walk as conquered creatures because of the resurrection of Christ. Rather, we walk as those forgiven by His grace. And so here's really the question for you this morning. Do you consider it incredible that God does raise the dead? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? I mean, this isn't a matter of little importance. This is of first importance, as Paul told those in Corinth. I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. And that He was buried. And then on the third day, He rose again according to the Scriptures. It's the first importance. It's the first thing. It's the gospel that he proclaimed. See, because apart from Jesus Christ rising from the dead and conquering sin, we have no hope. We have no hope. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is worthless and we are dead in our sins. But I'm here to tell you this morning that Christ has been raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15.20 And that changes everything because if you believe this, you no longer have a fear of death because Jesus conquered death for you. You don't have the weight of condemnation upon your shoulders. Rather, 
Because Jesus took our sin upon Himself. You're free. You're happy. You're blessed. And you'll have eternal life. But this morning, this morning finds you in a state of unbelief. If, if you don't believe the resurrection, I'd really encourage you to go home today and, and search my points and just say, what's my stumbling block? Say, so, you know what, maybe, maybe I don't believe the prophets. Do a search of the prophets and see whether that's what you believe. Or, or say, you know what, maybe I don't believe Jesus. Go back into the words of Jesus and say, what do you say? Do I, do I believe that? Maybe you don't understand the power of God. Or read the Psalms. Think of creation. It speaks of the mighty power of God. Read Job 38, 39, 40, 41, 42. Read Psalm 148. Read Psalm 139. Speak of the power of God. Maybe, maybe that's your problem. Maybe you're seeking more proof. And then think about it. Do, do I really need more proof? Do I, if I get more proof, will I really believe? And know that there are others who've walked in your shoes before. There are others who haven't believed for these reasons, but have later come to see the light. It's my earnest prayer and desire that all of us would be believing and not unbelieving. That we would see the resurrection of Christ to be credible, not incredible. So let's pray. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Alleluia. What a Savior. When He comes, our glorious King, all the ransom home to bring, then anew this song will sing, Alleluia. What a Savior. So Lord, I would pray that as we have contemplated, thought about the resurrection of Christ, seen reasons why people don't believe, that you would grant us faith to believe. That you'd cause us to be born again, as you did to the believers scattered about through Pontus and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Cause us to have a hope of the, of the Christ, that this world is not all there is, but there is a There's a glory waiting for us beyond the river for those who believe. For those who trust Christ, we will get there in glory. We will see the resurrected Christ. And we will know Him. And we will be like Him because we see Him as He is. The tears will pass away. No more death, no more dying, no more sorrow, no more pain. The difficulties of life are gone. So I pray in this fleeting breath of a life that we have, God, be among us to stir in our hearts to see the resurrection is very credible. It's not incredible as many believe. It is fully to be believed. And I pray that you would stir that conviction into our hearts, show us of the the goodness of belief and what it does to our souls, how it helps us, how it purifies us, and how it gives us a hope to conquer over the, the trials and difficulties of life. Be with us this day. Many of us will be celebrating Easter with our family. Our discussions beyond Christ. May we rejoice at the work that He has done. It's in His name we pray. Amen.